Wednesday, December 13th. Welcome on in to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. How you doing, Avi? I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm Cherry Gregg. Interesting hour on tap for today. A year ago, Richard Laser joined the Philadelphia Parking Authority as executive director. He was tasked with flipping the image of the agency. He is with us today to answer all of your questions. Many of them are already in, but keep them coming. Our email is studio2 at whyy.org, and the number to call is 888 477 9499. Later in the show, Cherry, we're going to talk about college sports. Ooh. Athletes can now profit from their name, image, and likeness. Someday soon, they might get direct payments. Mm. Is that a good thing, a bad thing, a little of both? We have former Inquirer columnist Mike Jensen with us to talk about the future of college athletics. Lots to talk about on that subject. But before we get there, Avi, we have some news from SEPTA right now. We're waiting news today from the SEPTA Transit Police Union about a possible strike. Tuesday night, the VP of the union said he and union reps were not happy with the offer put forth by the agency, but they are going to put it to the members for a vote. The SEPTA police officers will vote on that offer today until about 6 p.m. tonight. The results are expected to come in around 7 178 SEPTA police union officers have been working without a contract since March of this year. Andrew Bush is a SEPTA director for media relations. He told our news partner 6ABC that what is now on the table is a three-year contract that would give 13% in raises over the course of that contract. He says the big disagreement is over when those raises are phased in. Now, if the union officers vote the strike, Bush says that the transit agency would have to rely on the Philadelphia Police Department and University Police in case of a strike. They'd also hire some private security guards, but hmm. they're going to keep it going no matter what happens, he says. Right. So if the strike happens, your train will still be on the same schedule. Exactly. Et okay. Um, yeah. Obviously, we've talked about safety on mm -hmm. SEPTA, and there is a perception that it's gotten a lot less safe. So I can't imagine people's opinions would be improved if you you know, uh, subtracted 178 police officers out of the equation. But, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll wait for that news tonight at, at 7 o'clock, right yeah. around 7. Yeah, we will see what happens there. Um, hopefully not a strike, but we'll see. Hey. Taking us over to Penn now, mm -hmm. University of Pennsylvania. Been talking about that school a lot. We have. <laughs> Recently? In recent weeks, yeah. Um, so, as you know, the, the president, Liz McGill, was recently – well, I guess she officially she resigned, but she was basically ousted. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a, a prominent donor named Mark Rowan, who was a driving force behind her ouster. Rowan, if you don't know, uh, founded co-founded a private equity firm called Apollo Global Management mm -hmm. with uh, Josh Harris, who owns the Sixers, and Leon Black, who's had other problems recently. Um, and anyways, Rowan uh, recently, uh, according to the Inquirer, sent a, a big yeah. list of questions mm -hmm. to the board and they're not you know he's just asking questions cherry it's no demands just a lot of questions mm -hmm. about how the school is run and how the board functions and that has raised some alarm bells among the faculty and other folks on campus thinking that perhaps rowan and other donors are trying to exert more influence about how things run day to day at the university of pennsylvania Want to chime in on that? Yeah, I mean, we we even kind of touched on this issue just a tad, just um, a tad during our discussion about free speech on campus, um, because you know donors sort of led the ouster of 
the uh, president of, of University of Pennsylvania. And to me, it begs the question, how much influence do donors or should donors have over institutions that they support? And what, if anything, do those institutions owe them? Mm-hmm. Does this big check entitle you the right to, to influence curriculum? How about who gets hired and fired? Yeah. Or do you just get a simple thank you note? Thank you for your support of your <laughs> university. Should you be able to dig in there when you have no real academic experience, no real understanding of some of the legal issues that a university or other institution is dealing right. with? How much influence? And I, there's a lot of things that, that could go wrong here. Um, a lot of things could go right. I don't know. I mean, it, and, and this issue with donors um, exerting their influence has really um, come up recently because of the war in, in Israel and Gaza. Well, and before. It's, it's and before. not like a secret that donors exert a lot of influence yeah. at universities. And other All things, you have to do is walk too, yeah. down, you know, Locust Walk, look at the buildings and the names inscribed in the stone. Those are generally people who gave a lot of money mm-hmm. to the school. The professorships are named after people generally who gave a lot of money to the school. So, you know, large private uh, higher ed institutions are kind of oligarchic. That They've always been that yeah. way. The question, I guess, here is, is was there kind of a boundary line? Yeah, An unacknowledged boundary line that has existed for a long time that maybe is starting to be breached. And I actually wanted to read a little bit from Scott Bach, who was Mm. also along with Liz McGill, um, ousted from, well, let's say he resigned as the chair of the Penn board. And he wrote in an op-ed in the Inquirer, for nearly all of the 19 years I served on Penn's board, I felt like there was a very broad, largely unspoken consensus on the roles of the various constituencies, the board, donors, alumni, faculty, administration. Once I concluded that this longtime consensus had evaporated, mm-hmm. I determined that I should step off the board. I don't pr- pretend to be an expert here. I don't know exactly where those unspoken lines mm-hmm. were, but I think even the people on the inside seem to think that something's changing. Yeah, and the Penn chapter of the American Association of University Professors wrote that Unelected trustees with no academic expertise are evidently attempting a hostile takeover of the core academic functions of the University of Pennsylvania. We'll see. So that's what they, we'll they're they taking that hard line, yeah. sounding the alarm. Well, yeah, they're trying to at least get so, people's attention on yeah. it. We'll, we'll see. I mean, but obviously donors played a huge, huge role in what happened over the I, last few months. And I think we both agree. We should have a deeper discussion should. about this. We should. For sure. Um Speaking of another university, much smaller university, Cheney University, the country's oldest historically black college, is sending a token of appreciation to former President Jimmy Carter to commemorate a speech he made at the institution nearly 45 years ago. Of Mm -hmm. course, we all know that former President Jimmy Carter is currently in hospice care. But back on May 20th, 1979, Carter gave the commencement speech at the university or Cheney University, on the quad. It's an outdoor venue there. It was a big deal. It was the 25th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education there. And the speech was a big hit. And there's a plaque on the quad. So now the flagpole on the quad is being replaced. And they're sending him the original flag from that day. And they're going to send it to him all nice. Governor Josh Shapiro wrote him a nice letter. Congresswoman Mary Gay Scanlon, the president of the university. And all of this was arranged by Cheney alum Leroy McCarthy. Now, he is known to get recognition and award people who are African-American and have been very influential or others who have had big influence on the African-American community. And, of course, 
President Jimmy Carter falls in that area. And it's just a good wishes to him who has done so much in his life, um, but is currently in hospice care. And he just recently lost his wife, former first lady. Yeah. Well, I hope he enjoys the flag. I hope so, too. All right. It's a nice gesture. It is. Um, so uh, we're getting close to the end of the year. Google came out with a list of the top Internet searches 2023. Billy Penn did a little write-up on what Philadelphians have been searching for on Google. Mm. Um, air quality near me was top of the list. I think we probably know why. It was, yeah. Um, pawn shops near me. Ooh, that's Plasma so donation near me. <laughs> Um, and also batting cages near me. That batting was mi- cages. Batting cages. Head scratcher. Uh, maybe because the Phillies did well. And they wanted to pretend like they were a Philly and go to the batting cage. <laughs> right. I don't know. That's right. Um, so uh, that one was sort of inexplicable. Plasma donation, also kind of inexplicable to me. Air quality to me, that, that, that made a lot of sense. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I saw some of the people on the list. Um, I saw... Um, Damar Hamlin made the list. You remember he had that heart episode on mm-hmm. the field and everybody gave a lot of money. He's from Pennsylvania. Um, also, Travis Kelsey, you know, dating a Swift, a Taylor Swift there. Um, so very interesting. Very interesting um, list by Google. You might want to check that out. You think it was really interesting? You, uh... I mean, I did search. I did search about the air quality. I will <laughs> okay. say that. Oh, by the way, Last of Us. Um, was one of the most searched TV shows by Philadelphia. By Philadelphia, as was The Golden Bachelor. Yeah, I didn't search for. I don't even know what you The Last like of Us is. You were like, do you really find this interesting? Jerry? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the batting cages thing is interesting because there's no real explanation for it. There aren't even that many batting cages in Philadelphia, not that I'm aware of. There's, yeah. like, there's only a handful. Yeah. Maybe that's why people are searching for them. Maybe. And you know, as we wrap up this segment, by the way. Tonight, do you like, I know you like looking up at stars. What? And then the sky. Yeah. No, not really. Well, tonight is the best night to see the Geminids meteor you, shower. I know we have to wrap up the segment, but why did you assume that about me? I don't know. I've never said anything about I know, this but I just, I, you just look like you just, you're very curious. Not interested so. in the star. I'm sorry. I'm just not interested in the well, stars. Well, the Geminids. Kind of creep me out. It makes me feel about how small I am in the universe. Yeah. And I'd rather not picture just the vastness of everything. Well, the Geminids meteor shower happens same time every year when the Earth passes through debris left behind by the asteroid Phaeton. And tonight, if you look up in the sky and you're away from artificial lighting, guess what? You might be able to see streaks of blazing light. Tonight is the best night. streak of blazing light. The PPA director, Rich Laser, (laughs) standing by to talk about the PPA and answer your questions. That's coming up on Studio Two. All right, pull over your car, (laughs) park legally. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman. Good advice. I'm Cherry Gregg. Parking can become a real issue for many drivers in Philly or visitors coming into the city. You circle around trying to find a place to park and then you finally squeeze into the tiniest spot. You run your errands, come back to your car and surprise, surprise, there is a parking ticket on your windshield. It's because you broke the rules. Mm. Don't try to blame anyone else for your problems. <laughs> the folks that love uh, left that little love note on your vehicle are the employees of the Philadelphia Parking Authority. We often call it the PPA. The agency has faced a lot of scrutiny for confusing parking zones and restrictions. Some people think the enforcement is spotty or random, and there have been financial woes in the past. 
The drama at the PPA did become nationally known thanks to a little show from the late 2000s called Parking Wars. It's $32 that I didn't have that I'm going to have to spend. You know as well as I, there's nowhere to park. Well, welcome to Philadelphia. Yep. I have to say, that has happened to me. But just about one year ago, enter Richard Laser, the man asked to lift the PPA out of its misery. As executive director, he says he wants to make sure the agency will be seen as more than a form of revenue and officers on the hunt for cars to ticket. In shorts, he wants you to love the PPA. But is it possible? Richard Laser joins us right now to answer all of our questions. Rich. Welcome to Studio 2. We got a lot of questions for you. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm happy to be here. I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. Such a dramatic <laughs> intro. I'm sorry, Rich. <laughs> I, you know, a little okay. drama. A little okay. drama when we talk about parking. Uh, we want to make sure our <laughs> listeners uh, get a word in. Do you have questions about parking in Philly? Are you confused about the signs in your neighborhood? Email studio2 at org or call us. The number is 888-477-9499. So, Richard, we wanted to start with that little clip from Parking Wars, which we admit came well before your time. Um, But I got to ask you, a lot of people hate the PPA. Mm -hmm. They really do. They give out tickets. The the, the agency has been hit by scandals. I want to get your philosophy on leading an organization that affects so many, yet brings so many people ire. Yes. No, definitely. Listen, I came here. It's been a little over a year now. I started last December at the authority coming over from the city. Um, One thing... I will say is that the people that work at the rank and file folks that work at the authority are great people. They're public servants. They're probably the most well-recognizable public Mm -hmm. servants we have in the city of Philadelphia. Um, And there was a lot of issues going on prior to coming for years. I think the goal, one thing that's important to me that I've really been trying to focus on is we have to cover, you know, we enforce on-street parking for the city. So it's never, we're an enforcement agency. People don't love to receive a fine, right? But I think the other piece that we've really been jumping into is the quality of life work. So it's the bike lane enforcement, the abandoned autos, the tractor trailers on neighborhood streets where we're getting, where we're kind of going out to community meetings, we're going out to neighborhoods, and they're really responding well to that. And we're getting a lot of work done with neighborhood groups trying to clean up neighborhoods that maybe have not had that type of enforcement for a long time. I think so it's kind of balancing doing our work that we're supposed to do on the enforcement side, but also the quality of life piece as well. And also making us more of like on the policy side, how do we shape transportation policy, work with SEPTA, work with the city to shape a policy. And the curb side is going to be what it is. It's This is an old city. The curb's not getting any bigger, but mm-hmm. the uses for the curb is getting more, there's more demand on the curb than ever before. Give me some examples of that, like sort of the big picture policy stuff that the PPA can really you know, get involved in and make a difference in. Yeah, I think we're looking at we're looking at where it's better to have protective bike lanes versus just straight enforcement. We're looking about loading zones in neighborhoods. I know the big issue is on Pine Street with and Spruce where people can pull over for 20 minutes. We're looking, we're talking about maybe there's more loading zones so we can avoid that happening anymore and take that regulation away. We're talking about smart loading zones so we can work with UPS, Amazon, and FedEx of the world so they're not double parking. Smart loading zone. Define that term for me. So it's a zone where it's almost like an easy pass type system where mm. we have designated zones. We work with the delivery companies to find where they're most heavily delivering. And instead of them just pulling over wherever and just accepting the tickets, we make it easier so we can read their plates and almost charge the fleet 
of that company mm. and it's like a system instead of just parking on the corner blocking an ADA ramp or parking on a pavement or blocking a bike lane or bus lane. And I want to zoom out zoom out because you're sort of touching upon my next question which yeah. is sort of like what is the jurisdiction and what exactly does the PPA do? Cuz most people think it's just, you know, parking on the street, getting tickets, towing your car, but it's it's much broader than yeah, that. Yeah, it's a massive it's a massive organization. So it's a state agency, but we are we are in charge of governing and enforcing the the on street regulations for the city of Philadelphia for the whole city. So that's mm-hmm. meters, ticketing, towing, booting, uh, removal of vehicles, but all impoundment lots. But we also have a number of garages, eight nine uh, own garages that we provide affordable public parking because we kind of control the rates because we're always cheaper than all the other private uh, lots. We run parking at the airport. We enforce Uber, Lyft, and taxi and limo regulations for the state, and we do red light and speed cameras for the state as well. All oh, the speed cameras come from y'all. Okay. Can we? I, 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 I actually have a question about speed yeah. cameras, yeah. red light cameras. Like, how big? Sort of. We're talking moving forward. Mm-hmm. What's sort of the ideal saturation mm-hmm. of those cameras? Because they've been sort of bandied about, especially the speed cameras, like pilot program, yeah. and it seems yeah. to be working. Yeah. Um, then there's sort of a stop-start feel with it. But, like, if you had, you know, king-for-a-day type of powers, like, what would the saturation level be for speed cameras, for red light cameras? What's an ideal balance there? So I think when it comes to speed right now, there's the pilot program that we're actually working with the state, and I think we're going to get approval this week, hopefully, to expand that and legalize the boulevard. So there's 40 cameras on the boulevard, Roosevelt boulevard on yeah. Roosevelt Boulevard. Yeah. Uh, it has dropped 90% in speeding because of these cameras. It's very effective. It's very effective. I don't think it's meant for every street. It's meant for, da- you know, we have to look at the crash data. We have to look at speeding data. When, when, we, when, we, look at a, when we look at an inter- a, a road for a speed camera, we, we go out there, we look at crash data from police and from the city, but we also then put temporary cameras up to measure the amount of speeding that's going on. So it's a very meticulous process. We don't just pop up cameras. The state is now going to legalize the, Bull- the Roosevelt Boulevard cameras and then looks to give us five additional corridors in the city to put additional speed cameras. And that's something, again, we'll work with the city on to see what's best for that. But I think you're right. There's a balance because you can't put them everywhere. I think you have to look at the crash data. You have to look at the red light running because then it drops almost 50% when you put red light cameras in intersections. So I think it's where there's high density, where there's a lot of people traveling on different modes of transportation, whether it's bike, you know, pedestrians or car. And we have to really put the test cameras out there into a study, and then we put that through. And there's a, there's a check and balance. We have to go through city council. PennDOT has to approve. So there's checks and balances on how these cameras are used and how they're put up. Got to ask you about revenue. I know you want to. You you said you mm-hmm. don't want the PPA to just be bu- viewed as a revenue ge- right. generating agency, but how much do you guys make in a year, and, and where does that money go? And then there's a question, a couple, there's a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. Um, from B. Rock Harder on Facebook, who says, how much money does a PPA contribute to the school district? So give us the breakdown. Yeah, here. so there's definitely different pots of money that the authority, a lot of it's just like, we're like the transfer from A to B, right? So on-street operations, all that money with comes to meters, ticketing, booting, towing, anything that's on the street, the public street that we monitor for the city, we take the, you know, whatever it costs to operate the for salaries and, and and staff, and then we give that the rest of that goes to the city. So it's normally north around fifty million a year from uh, on street operations. The state there's a formula in the state code mm-hmm. that creates this threshold. So every year, 
the number that goes to the district changes. So I'm just going to give an example. So if we gave 50 million, we just say we raised 60 million in on-street operations through all those different op- uh, systems. That money, majority of it, when it hits the threshold, so the threshold is 50 million. That first 50 million goes right to the city. Anything over that 50 million would go to the school district. So it fluctuates every year depending on the revenue that comes mm-hmm. in from on-street. Red light and speed goes to PennDOT. All that money that's generated from those programs go to PennDOT for PennDOT to give out state grants for kind of transportation safety grants. The garages are mostly in-house, but we operate for the airport, so that money goes to the airport. The federal government, we operate for them, so that goes to them. So there is different pots of money, but that's kind of how it works. A lot of comments and emails, so I Mm -hmm. want to start getting to them before we run out of time. Email from James. uh, What's the status of PPA's bike enforcement officers? It had been a pilot program, I think. How's it working out? And I'll add on top of that, you know, where is it headed? So I definitely want to increase. So we kicked it off uh, last year with nine officers that primarily focus center city, university city, and South Philadelphia, where there's a high concentration of of bike lanes, specifically unprotected lanes. And they're looking for folks who are blocking these lanes. Correct. Any type. And we do safety violations, too. So if the Mm -hmm. bike officer's out there and somebody's blocking a fire hydrant, we'll write the violation for that. If you're parking on the pavement, we'll write. But mostly focused on blocking bike lanes. But I know a lot of folks, and we hear this a lot, and I'm sure listeners bring this up when we're talking about this, is Pine and Spruce has that 20-minute period where somebody can pull in the bike lane and unload and, and you know, and we have to we circle the, the, the area to, to figure out if they've been there longer or not. But the goal is we have nine officers now. I want to get that number up to 20-plus because – and I think we need to work with the city to see where we think – because our folks are out on the street, where we can think – where protective bike lanes will be better used than enforcement because I think there's some areas that are that need protective bike lanes. And just to, for definitions here, a protective bike lane you wouldn't really need to enforce because there'd be like yeah, a real barrier, a barrier there, mm-hmm. right? Whether so, it's a curve Unless or, someone's really adventurous. Right, yeah. Right. Okay. But I think the goal is we definitely need more enforcement officers because it's a large amount. It's a large area that we're covering with the nine officers that we have. So we're, I want to keep in, expanding that program. We're gonna, I'm trying to get that number up to 15 to 20 by the spring. And then, and then and see how enforcement goes from there. But the, the violations are up. Bike lane, I mean, the enforcement numbers. I know the inquiry did an article yesterday. The numbers are up for us to enforce them. I have a question from Amina who says, what will PPA do with a very limited parking near the center of the city? Are there plans to add more spots? And she also says parking garages exploit this mm-hmm. and the fees are beyond ridiculous. Yeah. So do you guys have any say over the parking garages? It doesn't seem like you do, but so, then sort of deal with the parking spots in Center so City. So the, the say we have with parking garages is we have our garages. We have about nine, probably eight in Center City that we we charge a affordable fee for. Uh, and that does help try to keep the privates down. But it is it's we have no control over what the private folks mm-hmm. charge. You know, spots are limited. I don't know if there'll be more parking spots on the street. I think it's because those streeteries kind of took up a chunk. You have streeteries, you have bike lanes, you have loading zone, and there's just so many people competing for curb space. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that well, I don't think there'll be an increase in parking in Center City, but I think it's how we maintain that parking and try to, you know, share, try to create policy that tries to share the curb as much as possible. Comment here from Catherine who says it takes too long. To log into the app mm. to pay, I think she's talking about for a parking spot. Mm-hmm. It was easier to pay on the meter, and I'll take that comment, expand on it a little bit. And we're talking with Richard Laser, executive director of the PPA. This has changed a lot. That's mm-hmm. a, I, you almost didn't 
you have to you have to almost step back to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. We were all paying with quarters yep. not that long ago, right. and now you don't. Right. Um, you, you deal with technology. You deal with a kiosk, or maybe you do it on your phone. There's always going to be growing pains with technology. Right. How well do you think the technology truly works, and and what changes might might we see moving forward? I think we always want to make it easier to 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 do business with us, but to park and operate. I mean, ninety percent of people use the pay by phone app, use their phone, mm-hmm. um, take the you know scan the the QR code. We do still take coins at the kiosks. We don't take dollar bills because the the, mach- the the thing that you put the dollar in never works. Yeah, it properly. never works. <laughs> and it gets jammed, and but we do have like over fourteen hundred kiosks throughout the city that we still are operation that our folks take maintain. Ninety percent use the app. Ninety percent. Wow, use the app. I would I'm not have either. guessed it yeah. was that hot. Yeah, yeah a lot. Is it going to be a hundred percent someday? Removing. I think we're always going to have that option of people to use. because yeah. some people maybe not want to use their phone or yeah. technology that much. But the goal is to make it as easy as possible. I think we just want to make it easy and quick. We're the only city. I'm going to say this. They're the only city where you can stop your parking and not be charged. Most cities, if you put in the full amount, they'll take the money regardless if you move or not. If you own the app and you stop it, you'll get a reimbursement from us for the time you didn't use. That's very good. See, if we're, we're not all about <laughs> raising money. You're, you're not squeezing <laughs> I everything. Love it. I, I, I got it. But do, the, the, you think the tech works for the most part? I do. I do. Okay. That's I, good. I definitely think it works. And if you are just tuning in, we are speaking with Richard Laser, Executive Director of the Philadelphia Parking Authority. He's been there for one year. Lots of questions coming in from our listeners. Um, Follow-up question, um, and they said, question from Ade, are there any efforts to make using the PPA app cheaper than paying at the kiosk? He says, for example, it costs 240 to pay through the app and two dollars at the kiosk. Um, is this for the Fernlock train station? I guess, yeah. Is, the is there context? like a fee associated with using the app? There might be like a fifty cent fee, mm-hmm. to, and that's to, probably for a transaction fee. To. Yeah, but our train lots, like I said, we and even our neighborhood lots, many of them are free. But the train lots are two dollars for the day. We try to make it easy as possible. But to, if you pay with the app, you're going to still have to pay that. Yeah, little, there's a transaction app fee. fee. Small transaction. So sorry, are they probably going to have to pay that fee for that convenience there? Um, Maxwell asks, how much money is each parking space worth to the PPA? Are you managing parking or are you enforcing parking? Big difference. What can you say to Manuel? I think it's a fine line. I think the goal for us is to look, and again, city council sets the parking rates. We can't unilaterally go in and and set the rates ourselves. In most cities, the rate on the street is always much higher than the garages because mm. the goal for them is to not have you park on the street and push you to a garage. We're the opposite here. Garages are much higher than and our own street parking is very cheap. Um, I think the goal is to manage it but to enforce to make sure that there's spot turnover, that people aren't just sitting in a spot all day, that we do enforce, especially in our core business areas. We have 300 PEOs on the street that enforce our op- but that's the citywide now too because we have residential parking districts now where people are we're in every neighborhood in the city not just the commercial corridors in center um, there is talk about this um, parking where you look at times of day and peak hours and you can kind of change the rates more dynamic dynamic parking. Yeah. dynamic parking there is thought about that where you can kind You're of fluctuate the rates. yes we are yeah. Do you have a, a timeline, a horizon? I think on it's that? a discussion. Very early stage. It's very early stages, but that then you can kind of gear where people are going because right. you can move people. Maybe if there's a crowd and there's no parking, you kind of gear them. To, but that's the way. That's the whole way the industry is going. Hmm. Interesting. I want to ask you about workforce a little yeah. bit um, because there have been stories um, 
a few years ago saying that the PPA workers were not being paid very well, right. like nine fifty an hour, I right. think, is what the story reported. Just sort of like, what are you doing to sort of, what is the pay, the yeah. current pay, yeah. and sort of what are you doing to sort of, um, you know, attract and retain folks mm-hmm. because they do have safety concerns. Yeah. They're out there sometimes by themselves. And yeah. it's not an easy job when people don't like your agency. 100%. No, I agree. I think one thing, because my f- former role with the city, I was deputy mayor for labor. So employee and retention and, and taking care of our employees was always a big piece for me. And it's important to me when I came here, we did the same thing. Our PEOs on the street, we just did give them a bump. They're at 40, between 41 and 42. We are looking at their salaries again to see what that is. We are pairing people up too so that they're not alone, specifically mm-hmm. when, when, the, you know, when the sun goes down. But the thought is like the whole package, right? So we look at the salary. We provide very good health care, which I think is important. We provide the SEPTA. We're part of the SEPTA pass program where we pay for SEPTA passes for our employees to ride to ride anywhere passes. And we look at our pension plan. This We are in the city pension plan. So we look at the whole package. And we also have well, one thing that it's important that's been here is that we push is tuition reimbursement. So if you want to come in as a, as a PEO and you want to move up there, we will allow you to go to school and we'll help you pay for your tuition so that you can move up. And a lot of folks that are in management moved up from being a PEO. want to get in this email from Lisa. I have a positive story I about like the that. PPA. <laughs> you're not related to Lisa, are you? No. Okay. Nobody named Lisa. Okay. <laughs> Two years ago, I was visiting my daughter in Center City and my car was towed. From the moment I arrived, I felt like everything went surprisingly smoothly. Everyone I dealt with was polite and friendly. Um, thank you for that email, That's nice. Lisa. So th- this gets at a larger uh, topic, though, which is is towing. A lot of people do have issues with courtesy mm-hmm. towing, yes. which is you're parked legally, but they need to do some maintenance or something on the street. They move your car yeah. somewhere, and then people have trouble finding it mm-hmm. afterwards. You making any advancements, any changes there, so that that can, the system is a little easier to navigate for people? Yeah, no, definitely. So when we what the PPA does, if we touch your car. If we move your car, we take multiple pictures of it and we log it into a system. So you can go on our website, type in your plate, and we'll tell you where the car is. We're working with the city now to try to replicate that with the courtesy tow program. Since we don't operate the courtesy tow program, it's private towers through utility companies, contractors. So we're working with the city to try to hopefully create a similar program and assist in that so that it is that easy. Once you touch, the, once you touch somebody's car, they know where it is. Hmm. Yeah. I, I got to ask you, um, we have a comment from Ross. Ross says the parking enforcement officers make mistakes all the time and fighting the ticket does not make mm-hmm. sense. Um, judicators work for the PPA and the only way to appeal a ticket is g- to go through the city, which costs $300 for a $30 ticket. What is the secret? And I have fought a ticket, didn't win. Sort of like, how do you fight a ticket if you if it was done by mistake or you know you're right? Yeah, so you could reach out to us directly if it's a full, if there's a blatant falsity to the ticket, um, to, to the PPA line. But the city, the adjudicators are city; they're from the they're on the city side, so they're so the ones that right. to okay. kind of judge mm-hmm. the play that role on the adjudication of the ticket. We are working now with our city partners to make it easier to fight tickets, whether we do online hearings, virtual hearings through Zoom. Um, we could do it through. But we're trying to make it easier to, and we're looking at new space to accommodate. Right now, we're kind of in a tight spot at 9th and Filbert. It's not the best. It's kind mm-hmm. of bureaucracy at its worst. Mm-hmm. Um, every time I walk by and I see a line outside, it makes me cringe um, to have people sitting outside waiting to get service. But the goal is to have a new facility, a bigger facility, and have better kind of customer service dealing with folks to make it easier to fight your ticket, to get on a payment agreement. Again, my whole thought is how do we deal with people better and make it easier to do, to do business or come in and a test ticket with us? 
versus which I, what type of now. evidence should I be collecting mm-hmm. when I'm sitting there looking at the the thing on my windshield? Yeah, no. Sometimes people sometimes the the, the plate Ooh, might be keyed in wrong. Mm-hmm. You yeah. got to always look at that. You always got to look. You know, if take a picture of the vehicle if you have it. You know, or sometimes if the app's not working right, there might be a glitch. Make sure you show your receipt if you you argue that you're paid for parking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, any type of evidence you feel helps you plead your case when you go in front of the city. Just a, just about a minute and a half left, but yeah. look, the way that we're getting from A to B is really changing fast. Mm-hmm. Rich, you know, yeah. the electric cars, mm-hmm. self-driving yeah. cars, maybe yeah. some point. Um, as modes of transportation change, how will parking change? What does the future of parking look mm-hmm. like in a major city like Philadelphia? Yeah, I think it's the dynamic pricing. I think it's smart loading zone. It's in, infusing as much technology as possible. We're doing this program with SEPTA, with bus cameras to keep our main thoroughfares in Center City open and moving. And I think it's getting ready for EV. Like we're, we're working now with the city to look at our neighborhood lots, look at yes. our facilities, where we could put more EV charging stations in because there's not enough of them to handle the demand. So mm-hmm. how do we step into that role? And I think that's important. we got to evolve with, with the technology that comes with and, it. And quick follow-up to that, could you see EV charging stations in neighborhoods, like yes. on light poles and things yeah, like I that? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at some of our community lots now at the city and see, because our neighborhood lots, there's 40 of them, and they're everywhere. We're looking at where we can put EV charging in almost we'll try to get them as many neighborhoods as possible. That is Richard Laser, Executive Director of the Philadelphia Parking Authority. Thank you so much for your time, no, sir. Thank you for having me. It was great. And congratulations on that first year. Thank you. It's been a great. It's been a great. We got time. Joni Mitchell playing in the background. I know. What's coming up next? Paying college athlete, athletes. Okay. Bobby, should we do it or not? That's we'll, the question. We'll ask an expert. Seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They paved paradise, put up a parking lot. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome on back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Arendt. College sports are changing fast. The conferences seem to shift every year. The Pac-12 is dead? And wait, UCLA is in the Big Ten now? What? College football has a playoff. The NCAA has legal troubles. And lurking behind all of this is money. Lots of money. Cash, cash, dollar bill. The top universities bring in between 50 to almost $100 million a year from a single football or basketball program, which has led to a long-standing debate about rewarding students with more than just a full-ride scholarship. We're in the third year of the NCAA's policy that allows student-athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness. And there have been recent talks about compensating students directly. Joining us now to lay it all out is Mike Jensen. Until just a few weeks ago, he covered college sports and basketball for 35 years at the Philadelphia Inquirer and has seen the field change dramatically. Mike Jensen, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. I got to start with the basics here, Mike. Name, image, likeness. What the heck does that mean? And in what ways can an athlete profit off of their talent now? in college sports? 
Yeah, until a few years ago, it were, there were no ways. Uh, basically, the school profited off your it, – it's literally what it sounds like, your name, image, likeness. So you couldn't have – you couldn't do commercials. Mm-hmm. You couldn't sell jerseys. You couldn't do camps. You couldn't do any of that. Uh, f- for a time, you know, Nike would, would, would sell the, the, the rights to Nike shoes to coaches. And then the schools were smart enough to say, wait a second, we should get that money. Mm. So the coaches and the school were getting the money, but the players were still were not getting the money. Zero. Yeah. So then there was a case a few years ago. Alston went, to the, uh, went all the way up the court system, and it was ruled that now athletes, former and, and current, could be paid for their name, image, and likeness. So how does it work in the real world? Mm-hmm. I'm an athlete. Let's say I'm on the basketball team at Villanova. Uh, what can I do to, to generate dollars in the here and now? Well, in, in small ways, you can do almost anything. You can go to the local shops and, mm-hmm. and say you'll, you'll, you'll sponsor their product, and sometimes you'll be paid in product. That literally has happened. Villanova basketball players getting, getting oh, really? pizzas delivered to the dorms. <laughs> cool. Yeah, you can do that. But that's small ball. Uh, and you can get you can get cars. Uh, you can you can do all the all those things that were supposed to be evil now are legal. Uh, but bigger than that, because of this uh, issue, uh, th- the boosters were smart enough. If if there's a loophole, they're going to drive a truck through it. Mm. And and that's really what's happened. And I sort of mean it in a positive way that these collectives you hear about are basically groups of boosters getting together and saying, okay, we're going to raise money. And then, and we're going to give it to the athletes, and, and and there will be small appearances and things like that that are required of the athletes to get paid. But now, that's where the money is. That's really, you know, mm. where the money is. So it's not direct. It's yeah, no. And I was going to ask a follow up about the collectives because that's something I didn't really know about. Like I've seen, you know, athletes becoming influencers on Instagram, for right. example, getting paid to endorse products online. But explain how these collectives work and how much money are these athletes really making? So, and, and I've written about this locally. Uh, it, it so varies by school by school, but it also seems to sort of parallel the big-time schools have big-time collectives and are paying mm-hmm. their players big-time money. And so, for instance, at Villanova, I had sources telling me that Villanova had raised $3 million for men's basketball mm-hmm. for their total group this year mm-hmm. and everyone on the team was making at least 75,000 uh but if you don't get to 3 million you know taking 75,000 12 ways some of them are making you know really healthy six figure salaries uh and and I would argue and did argue in print that that makes sense i mean there's money coming into Villanova basketball you know and dorms were built at Villanova on Lancaster Avenue because of Villanova basketball. So the players now are getting some of that. Uh, it's, and, and the it's, way it works, though, Mike, just the mechanics of this, you say they're paying them, but they they have to, I guess, in a token way, do some sort of service. Mm-hmm. They're not getting a direct check for their basketball playing, right? That's not the way it works. That's correct. They're getting a direct check because they're on the basketball team, but they still have uh, appearances, as you say, uh, doing some of these things. And it, it's it's not a lot. It's not too much. Because the NCAA, being the NCAA, the way they write these rules are, you know, the collectives are, are you're not supposed to be allowed to recruit or retain athletes based mm-hmm. on NIL. Well, why else would you do it? <laughs> right. You know, right. It, it's, you're sort of, and by the way, the schools are not allowed to have direct uh, supervision of the NILs. Well, okay. So, you know, it's the wild, wild west out yeah. there right now. And that's what they're trying to get, or, get 
uh, that's what Charlie Baker, the NCAA president, is now trying to get his his own arms around. And so let's talk about this because schools with big um, buckets of money because their boosters are, are able to raise this money are more attractive to student athletes. Is that how they're using um, these collectives to attract the best athletes across the country? Completely. And then if you think about it, then you're trying to compete within your own league. So if you're St. Joe's and LaSalle, you're trying to compete against the Atlantic 10 schools. You're not trying to compete against Kentucky and Texas A&M. So, but you still need to be very competitive. So St. Joe's, I think they're going to have a, a collective that is going to be over a million dollars next year. And, and a lot of it's going to be from one or two, two boosters. They realize if, if they want to retain their NCAA tournament possibility team mm-hmm. next year, they've got to be in this game. Mm-hmm. LaSalle's got to be in this or game. Or else I wrote the, pl- a- the players are going to go elsewhere. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the other part of it now. Uh, used to be you sat out a year. Uh, if you transferred now, it's it's instant eligibility the first time you transfer, and that essentially means free agency. More money, more movement, and there are going to be some schools that are clearly going to be left behind. Maybe mm-hmm. we don't know which ones yet. But you wrote about Temple. Temple has a storied mm-hmm. uh, basketball program, men's and women's, mm-hmm. and they seem to be struggling from from what I could tell from your reporting to raise the money needed to essentially pay the players who would come and play at Temple. Um, if that remains the case... That's true, wh- by the way. What yeah, happens... They are struggling. They're struggling. So uh, if that remains the case, what happens to Temple? And and should they even go on having big-time basketball and football programs? Yeah, and that is the question. And and I think some of it, they're, they're trying to educate their own fan base, their own boosters, to say, hey, this, this is important. Uh, even if you give to the school, that if you don't give to these NIL collectives, then, you know, we're not going to have the same program that we've had all these years. Uh, then I guess, what, what then what does that mean for the institution, right? Because at the end of the day, you can have a very successful school and not have big-time mm-hmm. college sports. You can do a great job educating students and not have big-time college sports. At some point, does it become incumbent on a school that doesn't have a big NIL collective to just say, hey, peace out. We, we did this for a while. It was nice, but we can, we can meet our academic and institutional goals some other way. Sure. You can do that. As you said, many have done that. Uni- University of Chicago used to be in the Big Ten. Mm. Uh, it dropped out. It, I, I believe it's all Division Three now. And, and there's you know, robust Division Three athletics where scholarships are not even allowed in, in D3. Uh, you know, you can get fi- financial aid, obviously, but there are no athletic scholarships a- allowed in Division Three. So there could be that. And everyone's trying to sort it out. Everyone's trying to figure it out. And that's what's that's why Charlie Baker right now, they're trying to walk this fine line because they don't want athletes declared employees. Well, in the meantime, they're saying we're going to pay them. Mm-hmm. So it's a fine line. And there are lots of court cases and they're losing a lot of court cases. Uh, you know, they, they've lost the court of public opinion. I mean, they lost a 9-0 Supreme Court suit on on uh, aid to athletes, and when does the Supreme Court ever vote nine yeah. nine zip on yeah. anything, right? Yeah, and I, I want to say there was a tweet from Chris who says, 
uh, name image likeness distinguishes the have and have not. It creates celebrities in the locker room. It's college, not the NFL. Mm. Um, email from Jamie who says full ride scholarships have been enough of an incentive for decades. These are kids. They really need a million dollars. And that goes to my question because you know, I, I, I used to play um, high school basketball, and I think about the LSU women's basketball team. Angel Reese raked in about a million dollars. Iowa's Caitlin Clark, UConn players, lots of opportunities there. Um, but, you know, that also could cause problems with the students. You know, um, can you talk about that? What are the players, what are some of the challenges the players are seeing once you start opening the door to, to all this money? It, it could, but, you know, they're happy about it. Let's let's put it this way: minor league teams don't have problems with with some you know first round draft choices getting paid a million dollars, and other guys making professional minimums, say in minor league baseball, for instance. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm not sure about that. LSU is an interesting case because they've Angel Reese isn't playing right now. Her celebrity was was huge. So I I look at it like looking at that Villanova one. It's very interesting where everyone's getting something. I think it's a little overblown that suddenly this is a big locker room issue. Like on our teams, we know who the stars are. And if they're the ones who are actually, you know, bringing in a little bit more money, I'm not sure that that's a locker room problem. I think that's a coach perception of a locker room problem. And and I'm going to spin it the other way. Mm. NIL could help if it helps retain and keep people in school, mm-hmm. graduation rates can actually go up. Gee, what a terrible thing. Keep them on a straight and narrow, too, right. because so you can make it, legitimate money. Yeah. Because oftentimes there would be, it would be a business decision for a young person to say, hey, I'm going to leave college, not complete my degree because there's some money to be made in the pros, whether that's a pro league here or even in Europe. Mm-hmm. Now they can stay here, take care of their family, and still work toward that degree. Is that That's sort of the positive vision of this. Yeah, and 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 that that's real. You only have like if you're a basketball player, you only have a, a very limited. Let's say you you have a ten year career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so and and there is real money to be made in in Europe, for instance. And now there's more NIL money than, for instance, the G League salaries are like sixty thousand dollars. So you can be paid more to stay in school. Let me ask about the other sports mm-hmm. though, because we're talking a lot about basketball and football, often called the revenue sports. But most students who play a sport in college don't play football and they don't play basketball. Um, what happens to them in this new world, especially as we see teams in, in weird conferences now where they have to travel across the country to play each other? I mean, how is this affecting the students in the other sports? Yeah, a, a couple things there. Well, there are many things there, but a couple of them I don't think they are addressing at all. This, this problem of, of, of travel, lack of rivalries, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Big Ten. So your, your field hockey team is now going to be going to L.A. The ACC supposedly is going to have a bunch of their non-revenue sports teams meet in Dallas for a big, like, I don't know if it's a weekend or a week-long uh, series of games, like at a midpoint. I mean, huh. it's, it's just all kind of nuts that way. Uh, there are huge Title IX implications that if your school is involved, uh, your female athletes are, are, yeah, are going to get the same yeah. amount mm-hmm. as, as your male athletes. Mm-hmm. So NIL was sort of outside of that. Mm. Uh, but is it really? You know, the, there are going to be court cases on, on that coming forward. And if I, if I got a second, Charlie Baker yeah, and now, was, mm-hmm. is, his, his sort of trial balloon that he's throwing out there is that his argument is, is sort of to have a superpower conference level, say the power five level schools, where if you're in 
at, to that degree that 50% of your athletes across all sports are going to make at least 30,000. Some, some would make a lot more. So that sort of answers the question of what they're getting at. It doesn't solve everything, but uh, they realize that uh, there, there needs to be yeah. money across sports. And we only have about a minute and a half left in this segment, but i got to ask you, you mentioned NCAA now looking at paying athletes. There are some proposals out there for how to pay athletes. What What's the progress so far? What, give us an example of a proposal of yeah. how they would get paid. Well, and, and, and that one from, from Charlie Baker, since, since he's the president, you know, this is clearly the one that they're looking at. Mm-hmm. And, and my concern is, okay, you can do that. Pay 30000 uh, across sports to at least half your athletes. That's an interesting one in itself because how, how you choose those athletes is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing on, on that is then, I, I, and I think he's going to know how to, to run this fine line. You don't want this super division where suddenly the NCAA basketball tournament doesn't have you know, Florida Atlantic is ineligible for no the Cinderella's top division. No Cinderella's anymore. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, it, but I think he realizes that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's the proposal. How they do, you know, hey, you've got to pay these, but everyone else doesn't have to do this, but they're still going to be in the same basketball tournament will be sort of wild. And by the way, 35 years, as we wrap up, 35 years at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Yeah. I mean, congratulations on <laughs> that. Um, what are you doing next? I'm going to write a book on Philadelphia basketball on – all the ways, many of the most important ways that the city and region have impacted the sport of basketball. That's uh, that's my next two-year project. And I'm going to read that book. I know. I'm you love hoops. I love hoops. Yeah, um, obviously uh, a hoop guy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Uh, that's Mike Jensen, former columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer and writing a, a book now about uh, how Philadelphia has impacted the sport of basketball. Thanks so much for joining us today on Studio Two. Thank you both. It's been great having you. It's an here interesting today. conversation, and I just I, I do wonder, you know, how will college sports distinguish itself moving forward? Mm-hmm. Because there was always this dividing line between the colleges and the pros mm-hmm. over money, and now the question is, what's going to make college sports different? And I think there's a lot of ways it can be different. Yeah, but I'm just curious to see where it goes, Jerry. Very interesting. We'll be watching it. Well, that is it for our show today, Avi. For more of Studio 2, you can follow WHYY on all social media platforms and download us wherever you get your pods. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Adam Staniszewski engineered today's program. From Studio 2 at WHYY, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. Thanks for joining us today.